So that recent heat wave across the Northwest, that had me thinking really deeply about climate change or climate shift or whatever you want to call it so it doesn't sound so political but just sounds like the new reality. And if you feel overwhelmed by it all, I know I do, imagine how kids feel. Brother and sister authors Keith and Chenoigawa, well, they wrote a book called The Whale Child. It's to help empower children to take care of the earth. And you'll hear about the story and also the resources in it for teachers. And how two Coastal Salish tribal members have Japanese ancestry. I hope you enjoy this conversation of Traverse Talks. Let's talk about The Whale Child is a book written for older kids, maybe 7 to 12, a chapter book, beautifully done, love the story, and we'll talk about that more in depth. But I was wondering if you could, for our listener, give an overview of what The Whale Child is about. Yeah, I'll go ahead and show you can you can add to it also. Um, so it's uh, so it's a story of so it, there's a, a little girl who um, she's native and she lives on the, the coast of Washington. And then there's the whale child. He's a, um, a humpback whale. And so he and his mother um, are, you know, doing all the migratory routes that the whales do. And she begins to show him all of the things that are that are happening in the world that are bad. Um, you know, the environmental degradation, rising temperatures, um, overfishing, um, you know, pollution, et cetera. And so the spirit of the water chooses the whale child to become a human boy for a short period so that he can come to dry land and meet this little girl, Alex, and basically take her around her homeland, a place that she's very familiar with, but show her all these different bad things that are happening, things to the wildlife, things to the land itself, the air, the water. Um, so he, he basically he represents, you know, that that alarm in nature, or the or the message from nature saying, you know, look what's happening. You know, we're facing some serious problems that could be unsurvivable. Um, people need to learn about these things and then start making the appropriate changes. So that you know, anything to add? Yeah. So the, in the beginning too, it's acknowledging the living spirit of the water. And the water is almost uh, one of the characters as well, knowing that the water is the one that gives us life and the water witnesses our life and, and knows what we go through and what our life is like and sees the whale child and knows that this is a perfect child to be able to carry this responsibility, that this is his purpose. And that he also has family on land, that it's not just his whale family, but that everything is interconnected and when he has a family on the land. And so through the grace and the magic and that spirit of the water, uh, he's transformed into a human boy to carry out this, this task of reaching his human sister on the land and letting her know from his perspective as a whale what's going on in the oceans and in the world. And she combines that with her traditional Coast Salish teachings and picks up that responsibility to be one of the children who's going to be speaking up for the earth. and teach the other children how to be caretakers of the earth again, to remember again that this is this is what we need to do. Right there, when you there's a point in the book where um, Shiny, the whale child, tells Alex, uh, his sister, the girl, that 
we're in a dream state that you, you you know these things. You know to take care of the earth and the water and the land, but we keep forgetting and remembering and forgetting. And uh, I that really resonated with me as a human condition that we keep learning our lessons and forgetting them. So I was wondering, in your opinion, why do you think that is? We know we need to take care of our planet, but we forget. I think um, I think it's part of the conditioning by the powers that be in the world because I, I feel that if we all remembered the power of what we are and how we are and that we're a part of this earth, that people wouldn't be able to control us, that there's income to be made, that money is a big motivator because money makes us want to buy things that we don't really need, but we're, we're train, being trained to think we need these things and they're taking us further and further from our connection to the earth as we rely and depend upon all of our machines. And we are not machines. We are not, we're not machines. We're, we're, we're nature, we're earth. And, uh, and so um, I feel like a lot of is, a lot of it is intentional to control people, manipulate and to make money. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Cause when you, when you think about, about, people, you know, we're, we're basically hunter gatherers. I mean, that all, all cultures, if you go back far enough at some point, every, every race, their origin, their people were hunter gatherers. And then, yeah, like Chanel was saying, I mean, I, I don't have the answer, but yeah, there's, there's this, this greed for this desire for more at any cost and consumption and more consumption and, you know, brought us to the industrial revolution. And um, yeah, I, I, I think, um, I think just that money and greed and how it's, it's easy for people to ignore what's important and what matters and how to live that guarantees, you know, the survival of human beings forever for each generation um, just kind of, just conveniently gets ignored, even though it's so obvious. Our it's educational system too does not teach us about our connection to the earth. And it doesn't teach us to follow things like Keith and I were talking, and I'm sure you remember the time there were no plastic bottles to drink out of and how bizarre it was when they started showing up. And we're like, what, buy water, drink out of a plastic bottle? That is so strange. But our children don't even know that there was a time when you didn't do that. Or in the story, we talk about the time when our family would drink from the rivers and where, which rivers can you drink from now without getting really sick? And so it's, it's something about that oral tradition that we have as native people. It's like, remember your story, remember your history, because in there, all the lessons about life and what we've gone through are there. And we don't want you to repeat these mistakes. So you need to know what it is to be a good person responsible person, a respectful person, and to how to take care of these things so that they're here for the future. And um, and I think our education today does not do that. It's more about how do you become a corporate leader? How do you... How do you get a job? Yeah, how do you get a job? How do you get a job and make your money so you can get your iPhone? Right. Exactly, yeah. Yep. There's another section in the book where the whale child, is, well, Alex, the, the girl, is questioning the whale child. How do I do this? How do I tell people the story? How do I take care of the planet? And I mean, personally, I was like, that's a huge load. <laughs> but he says it is the children who are going to save this planet. So you have to share the story. And part of that is he says it's one small step in the right direction. And I'm wondering what you think specifically 
children can do that's a good step in the right direction? One, well, one, one piece of that is, is the education, is, is the learning about the reality. You know, it's, it's hard. It's, it's frightening for kids that young. But um, it's really important that they, they learn the reality of where, where we are globally right now in terms of the environment and, you know, all the things we're talking about, you know, pollution, climate change, um, overconsumption, you know, chopping down all the forests to raise cattle, et cetera. Um, so part of it is is learning about it. And then in that process, right, they need to be given some, because they're kids, and they need to be given some easy options, those first steps. And I think it's simple things to begin with, like um, like what, what Chanel was talking about with the plastic water bottles, is being aware of of just how how they use water every day you know how long we leave the faucet running um washing cars watering lawns um and just being aware of oh yeah this that really is a huge waste of water especially when you consider billions of people and um and just learning little things little conservation type things they can do themselves and then of course as they grow older the ideal is that they keep learning more and more and do begin tackling, you know, the more difficult things like the big problem solving and solutions. But Shnaw, what do you think? I think um, like looking at what we have in our home, what what comes into our home, what is it made of, where did it come from, and where is it going when it leaves? And so you could take a product, like a cleaning product. Is it toxic? Would you drink it? Would you, you know, can you put it on your skin? It's going in the water. It's going in the earth. We're made of the water. We're made of the earth. So start looking at cleaning up those things. Start uh, paying attention. You don't need um, a plastic water bottle. You you can use the same thing over and over and just clean it. And um, the plastic, where does it go? Where does the plastic bottle go? You got it at the store. That's convenient. You take it home. You drink it. In five minutes, you're throwing that thing in the garbage and you didn't use it for anything else nothing else. It's just garbage. It's, and so, and then you multiply that by the billions of people and, and why there's more plastic in the ocean now than animals and creatures. Yeah. I think also planting a garden at home and understanding how life grows and how to tend life and the, you know, looking at the products that we like to eat, the food is, has it been touched by man? And if so, how much? Is it packaged? What's it packaged in? Is it mixed with preservatives? Does it have palm oil that's ki- that's taking all the home of the chimpanzees? Clear cutting entire rainforest. Clear cutting entire rainforest so that we can have palm oil. And so um, we really need to not just be blind consumers. We've got to look at where things are coming from and how we're using them, how they're impacting us, and where is it going when it we conveniently place our garbage can at the edge of the house? You know, Chenoy, you say a couple of things. Uh, the word convenient, mm-hmm. that that is just so much a part of our, you know, big Western culture is convenient and comfort. Mm-hmm. And when I think of those words, it is always about single use buy it, throw it away. So it's almost as if it's ingrained in the way we live today. And I don't think Americans are willing to be uncomfortable or inconvenienced. Exactly that. Right. That I think about exactly that is when you look at um, the pushback. Okay. Like here's an example. Okay. So like think of mask wearing, I, I still am blown away by the fact that it became politicized 
you know, people, not so much in Amer America, but you see folks from other countries, when they would go to the doctor's office, they would be wearing a mask, you know, by their own decision, because we know it's obvious fact, if you're sick, a mask keeps you from getting other people sick or keeps you from getting sick. If you're, That's just always been a known thing. And so when you look at the pushback over the mask issue, imagine tackling something like the beef industry, which is just a colossal offender on every level. And we don't need pounds of beef every month. You know what I mean? But when that conversation comes up, you'd be met with violent resistance if people think you're, you want to take away their beef. And, you know, so it's, so you're right. It's the, how do you get through that barrier of, we want all this stuff that we've always been used to, regardless of the cost. You know, while you were talking, of, an idea came to me is you tackle that when the planet makes it uncomfortable. Because <laughs> the planet isn't going to make it comfortable for you to have a steak every day because there won't be enough water to feed that animal. Yeah. I would like humans to not need pain to make positive change. And maybe, you know, between your book and the way people are raising their kids to be more aware, it's a culture shift, perhaps, without having to suffer with that. So like with my children, my daughter loves the little the Barbie clothes, the tiny little things. And I try really hard to go to the thrift store to save money, but also because it's there, it exists already. Why do we need to buy a new one? But it's just nothing but tiny little plastic things. And it, and so we we discuss all the time, you do not need any more of this. <laughs> you have plenty of Barbie shoes. And it hurts the environment. Somebody, some creature is going to eat it. It's going to get buried. It's going to last forever. And what was the point? So you could be entertained mm -hmm. for a couple of weeks. Mm -hmm. And so we, we try to, we're working through it. And boy, is it a hard brain synapse to rewire. It is. It is. Right. Yeah. Right. So back to the book, we were talking about, the children sharing the story and talking to each other, but also in the back, you have a way for teachers to address some core questions. What made you decide to put basically a teaching plan in the back of the book? At first, we talked with the, the publishers and they, they had that idea. They thought this would be a, a really wonderful idea to uh, use this as a guide for teaching kids about these topics. And so um, we started through their recommendation, and then they actually hired another gal to go through and, and align it with the curriculum so that it was something that teachers could just immediately put to use and not have to figure out how to design a whole program. Yeah. I mean, teachers have been so <laughs> busy this past year. <laughs> yes. This is excellent because it, that you just open up the back and right away by grade level, you there's core questions, there's ideas for essays, there's actually physical ideas of things kids can do hands-on. Right. And I really appreciated that. And that was uh, one of the reasons why um, when this book was introduced to me, I found it so fascinating uh, because it's it's one thing to ha write a good story, but it's another to really get it into uh, and talk about the education and the words behind it. So that's awesome. Yeah. And also, um, like I mentioned before, but because it is such a, a heavy topic for kids that so when when we were working on this, we were we were asking ourselves the question, okay, so when a, a kid gets through this story, you know, one of our primary hopes for it 
is that it's just opening a door for them and they're going to continue to learn more and research and you know watch documentaries talk about talk about the subjects um and that that also you know the light bulb went off of wait what if we actually at the end had something that encouraged you know parents and teachers to then you know help the kids digest and discuss what they just read and experienced so that yeah that was a big part of it is trying to make sure that there's that follow up that you don't just enjoy a story and then you know move on to something else and forget about it at nwpb.org you can find news music art and culture Never miss out on stories from your community by bookmarking nwpb.org, a website that engages, enlightens, and entertains. Keith and Chenoa, your last name, it's not Lummi or Indigenous, it's actually Japanese. Can you tell me how you got your last name? Yeah, so our um, paternal a grandfather was Japanese and Hawaiian from Lahaina and his wife our our grandmother was um, pretty much full-blooded native Lummi and Sklalem. Your grandfather is Japanese Hawaiian. Japanese and Hawaiian yeah and your grandmother indigenous is yeah yeah she was um, pretty much full I think there was a little bit of English in there but pretty much close to full-blood Native American. Did you two have ties with both of your heritages? No. So our grandfather, he was in Lahaina as a kid when Lahaina was literally um, a one general store that, and a ship would come in periodically bringing supplies. So it was literally just huts and this general store. And his mother, I think there was a sibling group of, Ashinoa, was it like 10 kids? And she gave him away to an uncle who lived down the beach and it was a terrible abusive situation. So he stowed away on a sugarcane boat to San Francisco when he was somewhere around 10 or 11 with a couple other local boys and basically lived on his own. He found like an uncle in San Francisco and he lived in the back of his restaurant. Um, So he was alone from then on and so we never he had zero contact with his family and so we never met any of them wow yeah it gets more i mean he, there's much more there's, it's a fascinating story it is yeah oh my god please tell me a little bit more about how that journey led to you two so then he um met that uncle in san francisco and he started doing a selling papers on the street street corner and um, but he used to go down and watch this um, boxing gym, all the all the people at the boxing gym. And there was a the manager's name. He was a black man named Sam. And he, Sam would see my grandpa come and watch all the fighters training. And one day he asked him if he wanted to learn how to box. And so my, my grandpa had wanted to. And he came in and Sam trained him. And then he became a professional lightweight boxer. And he traveled up the coast and with and doing fights. And um, at one point they wanted him to to throw a fight and he was just really, you know, did not want to do that, but he had no choice. And so he threw that fight and then he just walked away, but go ahead. He made it up to Seattle. Yeah. So he, um, it was actually organized crime where it was an up and coming kid. (laughs) So they, so they, they made him throw the fight. And so he did. 
And he, yeah, he carried that with him. I remember him talking about it as when he was in his late eighties and you could tell he still felt horrible about himself. Um, that's when he, he quit boxing and, and um, yeah, just carried that self-imposed stigma. He, he referred to himself as a bum for throwing that fight, but he was pressured basically by the mafia. And then he, so he met grandma at the dime store in Seattle. She was working, our native grandma was working at a dime store. And that's I, I thought it was a candy store. Or a candy store. Yeah. So he, they met and then they fell in love, but, and then they had my dad and aunt and uncle, but during world war II, because of his Japanese blood, they lost their entire farm. They had five acres, a home, animals, and they had to walk away with just what they could carry. And he was sent to Minidoka in Idaho for five or six years. And so what happened is, okay, so he went to Minidoka to be interned. And so my grandmother and our dad and uncle and aunt, because they were just part Japanese and were more Native American, um, they didn't have to go. So they went to the reservation to stay with relatives and they missed him so much. They went to whatever government agency it would be and volunteered to be interned with him. And yeah. they were. So they were also in an internment camp in Idaho for the duration of World War II. Oh my gosh, you two. Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's it's amazing, amazing story. And also to, yeah, we can't miss this part because it's also such a big piece of, of their, well, of the family history, but of their marriage. So our grandmother, um, you know, who is native, so I'm not sure how familiar you are with it, but one of the big, um, you know, government implemented policies, efforts to disintegrate native culture, you know, fought when the the Indian Wars and all that part of it were over, um, was to forcibly put native kids into boarding schools where they wouldn't see their families and they would make sure you know they were forbidden from speaking their language so they would lose that connection and the languages would, you know, with the intention that the languages would die out. So our grandmother was, I always say, I don't know if she was the last generation, but I if she wasn't, it was close to it, but I believe she was one of the last generations to be forcibly removed where government agents came to the house and got her and her siblings and took them away to boarding school. And she told the stories about kids being beaten and chained to posts for speaking native. And, and so she knows she went to Chamawa in Oregon yeah. was the boarding school. Yeah. Wow. So mm -hmm. one of the, one of the last ones to forcibly be removed. So their whole experience is unbelievably yeah. Yeah, so it's amazing that we're here, actually. You know, yeah. Actually yeah. Amazing. Wow. Holy moly. Yeah. <laughs> okay, I just need a moment because the story you just told me in my head is so vivid. I seriously think this would make a most amazing screenplay from your grandfather, not your great-grandfather. Grandfather. It's your grandfather. That's so, that's yesterday. Yeah, <laughs> right. What you're getting at is a big regret of mine because I've, I've been writing since I was a kid. And it was record. one of those things where I periodically would tell myself, okay, you need to make the point of sitting down with all of them and getting everything you possibly can written down. And so like the stories we're telling, we did pick up things here and there, but I never did what it really took to get the history. And then our dad 
he also realized the importance of that and he went out and bought a tape recorder you know this is before you know <laughs> a cd recorders and well those are even gone but as he had this big old tape recorder and i was excited too he was like i'm gonna sit down and i'm gonna because he knew their histories really well and he got cancer and died and he never even was able to start so we have information and some really powerful stories but the whole but the you know, like a continuum of their lives is something we don't have. Yeah. Just bits and pieces. And and things like dad would say too, like they lived in Woodenville and they were really the only mixed race family in Woodenville at that time. And a uh, lot of discrimination. And I remember dad was saying sometimes some of the Lummy family would come down to visit and then um, they were riding home in the school bus and and they were riding next to the carload of Lummy, Lummy family members that were coming to visit. And my dad said he could, he was, he could see, but he was like, he was kind of embarrassed, but he, but he, he was saying it was this beautiful picture. And it was, he said the people in the back were asleep and they had, their hair was like blowing out the window and they were driving alongside of, of the, the bus. And, and what happened is one of the little boys in the seat next to him jumped up and he goes, look at those Indians. Oh, and that's yeah. when my dad, he was excited. They were there to visit, but he was embarrassed because, you know, he was so different. But right. And all that long black hair flowing out the because it made it might have been a convertible or maybe yeah. just the windows were down. But yeah, that's a really good story. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. That's that just really points to so many things that your your dad had to blend. Yeah. And yet he was so he loved his people. Mm-hmm. Yes. So it's like living two lives and code switching and all that. And yeah, and they didn't have the words for it then. Yeah. Right. Wow. Thanks for sharing that with me. And I think the world needs to know your grandfather and grandmother's story <laughs> because they have forgotten about the Japanese internment camps. They've forgotten about the abuse even in Asian communities because life was hard in Hawaii. And then your own grandmother was taken away and hear these yeah. two young from broken background totally taken away from their culture people meet and fall in love it's almost like they made each other whole again mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. yeah it's amazing what a love story <laughs> This podcast is brought to you by NWPB donors. A gift of $5 a month supports the production of this program, and it makes you eligible for NWPB Passport. With Passport, you have access to an on-demand library of more than 1,500 episodes of PBS favorites. Come to nwpb.org and click on the donate button at the top. Would you consider yourself part of the the Lummi tribe or Coast Salish? Yeah, we're we're part of the Lummi tribe, and then we're also um, and we say Lummi Nation. Lummi Nation. Nation, and um, uh, we always acknowledge the Sklalem side too because that's where Great Grandma and Grandpa were born. So they're Jamestown Sklalem, and then they had to move to Lummi because uh, that was at the time when the reservations were being established. And they had an auntie who lived up in the woods by herself on Lummi. 
And she contacted the family and she asked them, please, will you come and live with me? I'm really lonely back here in the woods. And so the family moved by canoe and they went and they built a little house in the woods with the auntie so that they could all be together. So we ended up being enrolled Lummi when the whole enrollment thing started, then we became Lummi tribal members. But great grandma would, would tell us we're Lummi, we're Sklawam, we're Flathead, we're Klamath. You know, she told us that we had these other tribe bloodlines in us as well. But that's how the government system, you know, doesn't recognize the whole thing. <laughs> yes, because the government system doesn't like things to be complicated. <laughs> Pick one. Yeah. <laughs> when you do the race thing, pick, are you, I was surprised recently when I was filling out my COVID shots that it allowed me to pick more than one and they had something other than Asian. They actually listed a couple of different Asian types and I was like, wow, we're progressing. Now I can pick yeah. white and Korean. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This is great. Um, in this time and age of identity, did you always feel like you knew who you were or did you go through an identity crisis? So so going back to when you asked about our, our parents originally, that was actually another aspect of their parenting was, was that awareness always being there and that connection always being there. Um, and, our, and our mom, by the way, actually is entirely of Northern European descent. But yeah, so the so the cultural piece was um, that aspect of of us was was always there as far back as I can remember. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think I think I remember going through a little bit of an identity crisis as a kid. Even with that, I remember we just looked different than everybody else, and and we would go to Japanese gatherings, bonodori, and we would we were involved up at Lamia, go visit our family and our grandma and and be involved in different um, gatherings. And, but I always felt like I didn't look like anybody. And, and I just wished like, why couldn't I just be one of these and just feel like I'm really part of it. But I realized, so for me, I've been searching and my native heritage has led me on the most beautiful journey of going really deep into the teachings, like really deep into the spiritual side and learning about the healing wisdom and the wisdom of our ancestors and the stories and and living that. And so um, I remember there was one person I met from South Africa and I used to introduce myself and say, my name is Shinoa Igawa, I'm Lummi, Sklalm, Hawaiian, Japanese, English, Irish, Scottish, um, (laughs) you know, Norwegian and Swedish, I'm just all mixed up. And I would say, I'm just all mixed up. And then this one South Afrikaner man told me, don't ever say that again. He said, don't, you don't have to say that. He said, every single lineage that you carry has its own unique beauty and power and teaching. And you are all of those. And so don't ever say you're like that anymore. You're not mixed up at all. You have strengths. Right. And, was, and it changed in that moment. And then now, and then I could come and see as we travel, I could see people don't don't know where I'm from, and I fit in everywhere. <laughs> I, I'm and I'm <laughs> I'm, right. I, I'm international. <laughs> and and I I was aware of that too growing up. I I was always aware that I looked different because our grade school, middle school, high school was probably ninety five percent Caucasian. Yeah. So yeah, I was I was aware of it subliminally at least all the time. Mm-hmm. Subtly. Mm-hmm. That's really good advice, especially now as we are approaching more kids of mixed race heritage, right? Like the census says, whatever, by year 20, 30, 20, 40, a majority of people will be of mixed race. 
which I'm really fascinated by. And thanks for sharing that. So when you were doing your own personal journey and getting into the spiritual um, side of things, that reminded me of a part in the book where the whale child tells Alex that the answers are there. She just has to, what I essentially interpret as be quiet and still and look at the animals and listen to the environment and hear it. Mm -hmm. And that is something we don't do. We don't sit still and just be and listen because you're wasting time. Is that more of a westernized ideal of being? Because I feel indigenous uh, first peoples are perhaps better at just being. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think that um, that that was that was how we all were at one time because we were living off the land, no matter where we came from, our place of origin. We had to survive by working with the land and the animals and the plants and the water, and so there's a lot of peace and quiet time and you're connecting with nature and you're not stressed out by your phone and you're not stressed out by your busy work schedule. It was more about survival and being in tune with hearing and feeling like we even talk about that a lot, like the the people of old or the indigenous cultures that have had less contact with Westerners have more of this purity about them that is sensitive to the surroundings, to the nature, to the, to an insight, to an intuition um, that gets supplanted by this overactive mind. And in our teachings, we say everything, the heart is the guide. This one is supposed to help the heart carry out what the heart is saying. But in our Western culture, it flipped around and now it's the mind that thinks it knows everything and the heart is just left on the back burner. And so it's that is a Western way is this busyness and this overactive mind. And go ahead, Keith. Sorry, and you know, tell the story you tell about it, it links to the the stillness thing and nature. The story you tell about um, when I was little up in the reservation in the grass waiting for animals and great grandma watching. Yeah. Yeah, so our great grandma, we would go up to the the Lummi Res and visit our great grandma and meet my brother would always bring coffee cans, old coffee cans and punch holes in the lids. And he would immediately when we would get there, he'd run outside and he'd be he'd be down in the grass and just waiting for creatures to come <laughs> to snakes and different kinds of bugs and insects and and he would be so patient and so still and so quiet. And my great grandma would look at him and said, he's, he's like the old people look at him. You know, he can sit there and, and be still and quiet and focus and he's listening and feeling. And she said that that's how the, that's how the old people were. And so he, he was always like that from the time of being really little. Keith, that's like a huge compliment. It's a huge compliment, yeah. Yes, yeah. Huge compliment, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's a great story. Well, I love that she said you were like the old people, but I have to ask you about your names. Keith, you have a very westernized name. Yeah. Why is that? I'm not sure. Shanoa, you know, right? Because our our oldest sister, her name is LaTanya. Mom was worried that you would get teased more because you were a boy. So the girls, you know, it's a little more acceptable with the girls, but she didn't want him to get teased. And so she picked that name that he would not have any extra trouble. 
Yeah, that was, I think maybe it was you that I was talking with about that because that stood out to me a little bit. Mm -hmm. And when I, I mean, Keith, this is totally just me wondering. I was also wondering if it would be easier for him to blend and get a job because his name was Keith instead of an indigenous or an Asian sounding name. That, yeah, that could have been their thinking back then Mm -hmm. because that, yeah, that they both, they experienced a lot of racism as a mixed couple and so in terms of their thinking, that definitely, you know, could have could have been a factor. Mm, interesting. Yeah. And Shenoa, do you do you feel like you lost out in opportunities or being teased too much because your name wasn't westernized? Me? No. Um, no, I think for me, it, it, it was the right name. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and for him, too, you know what it means. Yes, of course. Now it's just to help. It's helpful. The name is actually helpful. Mm, I think. Good. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time and bringing a voice through this story for children to learn how to take care of the environment and also be encouraged to learn about First Nations peoples. And I really appreciate the both of you sharing your personal story of your family as well. Oh, thank you so much for having us yeah. on. We really appreciate it. Yeah, yeah. really appreciate it. Oh, I appreciate you guys. Thank you so much. Great. Yeah, really good talking to you. Nice Take talking care. to you, really too. Great. Bye. Have a great day. You okay, too. thank you. Bye-bye. <laughs> Bye. That's the authors of The Whale Child, Keith and Chenoigawa. You can get this Northwest book at independent booksellers near you. And for more on The Whale Child, there are many videos and resources if you Google the book. And thanks for listening to Traverse Talks. I'm Sue Ann Ramella.